Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Howdy, my good friends. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for stopping by again. You know, we all sit around and watch the news, at least as much of it as we can stand for throwing something at the TV. And we see some of the most horrific things that people can come up with to do to each other. Shown right there in full-blown living color and high definition. We feel awful for the folks it happens to, but really hardly ever think about what the chances are that it could happen to us or maybe even happen close to our home. As we've seen the past two weeks, just because we see it more today didn't mean it didn't happen over a hundred years ago either. Y'all know me by now, and you know that I heard about all kind of things back when I was growing up. Some of it I've already told you about, and some of it's still yet to come. This is one that I hadn't heard of before, but found while I was actually looking into one that I had heard about. That is, if that makes any sense, on a podcast coming from a hillbilly. This is one that took place a fair, fairly close to my home where I grew up. So have yourself sit down and let me tell you all about it. Chesterfield County Deputy Sander was called to the scene early on the morning of July 19, 1911, just outside Richmond, Virginia, along the Midlothian Turnpike. He was the feller that had the honor of being what we'd call today the canine officer. Back then, the canines were mostly used to run down escapees from the jail or prison, so they were called penitentiary dogs. Because somebody got the bright idea that Maybe these penitentiary dogs might be of some good use in the case. He was asked to bring them to the scene and see what they could do about giving a little bit of a help to them, finding somebody. Their job this time was to find a bearded man that had apparently murdered Louise Owen Beatty. Louise was a 21-year-old wife of Richmond's wealthiest citizen, or at least one of them, named Henry Clay Beatty Jr. He was 26. The night before, Mr. Beatty, had, along with his wife and their five-week-old baby, went over to visit their Uncle Thomas Owen 
just outside South Richmond about 10, 15 that evening, uh, what we call in the mountains, pretty much night. While the baby was sleeping, Mr. and Mrs. Beatty decided to go for a nice drive. It wasn't even an hour later that the car came ripping back up to Uncle Owen's house with Henry driving like a madman, one hand on the wheel and the other waving out the window while he yelled, Oh my God, they killed Louise. Uncle Owen rushed over to the car and looked inside, and it wasn't pretty. He found his niece's body with a hole the size of a 50-cent piece in her left cheek close to her nose. Blood had matted in her hair, so much so that uh, he even thought the top of her head had been blown off. Henry said that they had been driving along the road, heading home, when a bearded drunk with a shotgun stepped out in front of the car, making him have to stop to keep from running over him. That caused the car to then stall out. Back then, folks, cars had manual transmissions and an odd setup as far as the clutch system was concerned, and if a car had to stop short like that, it did usually kill the engine. Then a lot of the times, the engine would do what they call flooded. It meant that there was too much gas that got into the combustion chambers, and the engine wouldn't fire, so you had to sit there a little while, let the vapor rise back out, and then you'd be good to go. But Henry said that the bearded whack-a-doodle yelled, What in the hell are you doing, trying to run me down? Sure enough, the car died, like he said, and so Henry was trying to get it started back again, but the man yelled that if you start that car, I'm going to shoot. Sure enough, Henry said the car fired up, and as he put his hand on the clutch to make a run for it, the car lurched forward, and the man pulled the trigger, and my wife fell behind me. Now, if he'd shut up after that, things might have went a little bit better, but the lint-picking weasel in him had to come out, and he just kept talking. He then told Uncle Owen that all 110 pounds of him leaped out of the car and pounced on this huge bearded man while he pointed the shotgun at him. Apparently, Henry was so fast that he couldn't even think to pull the trigger and kill him, too. And to beat that, Henry was so strong that he managed to get the gun away from the massive man, and then the attacker ran off. Henry didn't shoot at the man. He just threw the gun in the car and tore off back towards Uncle Owen's house. In fact, he was going so fast that when he hit a bump in the road, he sent the gun flying out the car somewhere along the way. What with the Beatties being so rich and powerful that they used $50 bills for outhouse paper and all, the police took the story for what it was worth and were following that. And the next morning when they brought Deputy Cinder back out there to with his bloodhounds to track down the big bad bearded man in the woods who killed Louise. Of course, the bloodhounds weren't the first one to smell a rat. The police already thought the whole thing smelled pretty much like pan-fried carp as it was. A big puddle of Louise's blood was right there in the middle of the road, and that was where the dogs were going to start. For hours, the canines walked around circles and the blood puddle and their ears stirring up the ground, you know, like old bloodhounds do so they could get the scent stirred up. All they managed to do was keep looking up at Deputy Cinder like they were asking him if this was some kind of joke. They never found so much as a gnat hair of a scent or the way the big bad bearded man of Mebe ran. Deputy Cinder came to the conclusion that his top-notch bloodhounds couldn't find a trail because, by golly, there just wasn't one. There was only one thing that they could do from there, and that was to start picking apart the details of Henry's story, which they probably had to do with the clothes pin on their noses because it stunk so bad.
But the first thing that, that stunk was the fact that the shotgun had been found about the time the sheriff was about to piss on the fire and calling the dogs. It was like Henry told him along the turnpike, but instead of laying near the road, it was about 25 feet off the side of the road. That was a right smart distance for a shotgun to fly out of a car, no matter how fast it was going or what kind of bump it hit. Of course, today's cars go fast enough for something like that to possibly happen. They just didn't make them back then. To the police, it seemed to them like somebody had uh, walked over there and hit it. All the while that was going on, the coroner was looking at Louise. In fact, he was getting knee-deep into the examination of Louise's wounds, which he'd found a bit odd and suspicious. Henry had told him that the bearded man was about six feet away when he fired. From that distance, the shot would have left powder <clears throat> embedded into Louise's face, but there wasn't any. A funny thing happened after that, and by funny I mean odd. Police got a tip that from Henry's cousin Paul Beatty that Paul told him that a few days before the murder, Henry had asked him to go buy him a shotgun. So Paul runs down to the hardware store, grabs a nice one, and hands it over to Henry on July 24th, on July 14th, I'm sorry. Just five days later, the undertaker was picking shot out of Louise's face and head so that they might be able to let the family see her one last time before they buried her. There was one last thing that came up, and her name was Beulah Benford. Even though old man Beatty, Henry's dad, was a fine upstanding pillar of the community, his son was a full-blown tantrum-throwing, spoiled, rotten brat that had grown up getting his way through hook or crook come hell or high water. He had him a taste for hanging out on the more nefarious side of Richmond. That's where he met Miss Benford back in August of 1907. The fact that he was on, she was only 13 didn't mean a thing to him. He was, she was said to have been had the scruples of an alley cat and made money doing about anything anybody wanted her to do, and by anything, from what I've read, I mean literally anything. Folks, this is about to go far south as it can go. Stick around, I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, Henry and Beulah were a couple until the fall of 1908 when she up and moved to Washington, D.C., where she had a baby boy that she said belonged to Henry. In fact, she took him to the nearest church and had him christened Henry Clay Beatty III. Nobody alive today knows what happened to the little feller, but he died as an infant. At this point, I'd be trying to find out if Henry was around anywhere to whatever happened happened anyway. When Beulah left town... Henry ran around telling everybody that would listened to him that he was done with her. Then in September of 1910, he went ahead and married the girl his dad had picked, hand-picked for him. And that was Louise Owen. Just like all the upper crust of the time, Henry Sr. thought that she was a properly cultured young woman. And it didn't hurt none that she was from a suitable family. Now just what suitable meant back then or even today, I couldn't tell you. As far as anybody could tell, they were happy as a lark together, even happier when the baby came. But things ain't always what they look like, are they? Henry wasn't done with Beulah. He was living a double life, and she was half of it. For some odd reason, she had moved back to Richmond and was living in a fully furnished apartment, fully funded by the young Mr. Beatty. Of course, Henry stood there with the stone-faced denial, telling everybody that he hadn't seen Beulah in years. 
that's when the police busted him right through the eyes with another little piece of evidence they'd found. On July 24th, and I'm sorry, I said 24th again, it's July the 14th, which just happened to be the day that Cousin Paul dropped off the shotgun, Henry had sent Beulah a note. It said, Dear Kid, at least he got that part right, pay this tin on the furniture and make the man give you an itemized bill. And the moron signed it with oceans of love, brimming with kisses, hun. Yeah, that did it. Before he could write another one, he was under arrest and charged with the murder of his wife. By this time, detectives had put together a strong case along with a nice motive. It looked like Henry's goose is cooked right about now, and I mean literally, because Virginia, well, along with New York, was where we've been the past two weeks, also had themselves an electric chair, and it was using it like it was an assembly line on a manufacturing plant for cars. Uh, the so-called Dear Kid letter was proof that Henry and Bueller were still an item despite all the denying that he could come up with. In fact, the very day before the murder, Henry had spent the entire night at Bueller's place. I don't know how he managed to pull that off, but he did. When Henry Clay Beatty Jr. came to trial on August 21, 1911, there wasn't a wisp of love to be found for him as far as the public was concerned especially after all the newspapers got hold of the story and ran him into the ground. Come to find out, his marriage was troubled and Louise had been talking divorce, and she meant it because Henry had contacted or <clears throat> what the papers called a serious physical ailment by his wrongdoing, and he gave it to, to his wife. And uh, on the stand, yes, he hadn't yet dug himself deep enough into a hole, for it for himself and he had to get up there with a shovel and do some more digging henry stuck to his story about the big bed bearded man and denied that he had asked paul to buy a shotgun he told everybody that he and beulah had been on the quits for a long time but she wouldn't leave him alone in fact folks the only reason he stayed in touch with her and kept paying for her apartment was that she was trying to or he was trying to lead her away from her awful ways there wasn't a soul anywhere that believed a word of it. The jury took 57 long, hard, agonizing minutes to find him guilty, and the judge sent, sent him to the death by electric chair. And his only comment then was that he hadn't been convicted of murder. He was convicted of an affair that people thought he had with Beulah. Now, everybody was apparently wrong but him. He added that these country folks just can't understand how a woman in the underworld can be crazy about you. They don't know when it, that happens how hard it is to get rid of her. Why, if this case had been tried in a court where I wasn't judged by a bunch of backwoods knuckle-dragging hillbillies, this morning I, I would be a free man. Of course, I paraphrased that last part because that's really what he meant. But despite it all, and all the money he had access to and the best lawyers that money could buy, nobody could find, buy, or manipulate a loophole in the system big enough for him to squirrel his little tweezer ass through to get out of it. So that left him sitting there counting the days that they had left. That's when he decided to just come clean about it all. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking that it must be some kind of a ploy to keep from being fried, died, and laid to the side. But... Just before his date, on November 24, 1911, he offered a complete confession with, which matched the prosecutor's case to the letter, 
What about Beulah? She didn't stick around for the trial. After the trial, she left Richmond for the bright lights of Broadway. And she offered to tell her story in vaudeville houses and pose for picture plays in the new film industry. Of course, it was strictly for the purposes of teaching moral lessons and the wages of sin to the younger folks. Or so she said, but nobody was buying what she was selling, and every city that she went to, they pretty much run her out of town on a rail like a big scarlet letter was stomped in her forehead. After they planted Henry in the cold ground of the Appalachian foothills of Virginia, life went on for the citizens of Richmond, and there's not many people that remember the case today. I hope you got something out of the story today. It's another one that needed telling. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us and get notified of new episodes on whatever media you're listening on. Come join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast where we talk about everything Appalachian or whatever else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and I'll see you then.